And when we get to the point where the acquisition of wealth goes beyond our basic needs, the acquisition of this wealth can actually be counterproductive to happiness. Earning more income comes with the cost of spending more time at work and less time on social activities and social relationships. We now start placing a greater emphasis on the wealth in itself versus the things that actually make us happy. Like it or not, you, me, and everyone else, we all have a relationship with money. And for the most part, it's a complicated one. My name's Sean Maslick. Welcome to the Most Hated F-Word Podcast. As a certified financial planner, I want to take you on a journey as we throw out the technical finance books and shift our focus towards our minds, our money, and what matters most. If you're looking to improve your relationship with money and build true wealth, you're in the right spot. Finances does not need to be the most hated F-word. Welcome back to the most hated F-word podcast, where it is our goal to examine the intersection between our minds, our money, and what matters most. Today, I'm doing a solo session. I thought it's been over a year, and I want to do a solo session in this summer here, as I thought it was important to talk about perhaps a shifting of focus for the podcast. And what I mean by this is that over the last 12, 14 months, however long the podcast has been out, I've been fortunate to have so many insightful conversations with people. And my main mission has always been to explore the intersection of our minds, our money, and what matters most. And when I looked at this, I asked myself, why is that the focus? And at the start of the podcast, the focus was to help develop or understand how we can develop healthy relationships with money. And this is still important. It's critically important that we learn how to have this healthy relationship with money. But I keep asking myself, why? Why am I doing this podcast? And over the last few months, and perhaps largely due to my studies in my master's program of positive psychology, I'm seeing more and more how people on the podcast, people I talk to, they want to of course, examine this intersection between our minds, our money, and what matters most. But fundamentally, I'm starting to see that people just really want to live a good life. And that might seem very intuitive or seem like common sense, which it is. But when I look at podcasts around money, even my podcast around money, the goal or the why was always how to have a healthy relationship with money. But perhaps we want more than that. We want to have this idea of living a good life, just as other podcasts who give fantastic information around money on the technical side, their focus might be on how to build your investments, how to save more money, how to invest money better. Those are really important conversations and actually required to have a good life. But I think the next journey for this podcast is to really focus on the why of is it possible to flourish beyond our finances? Okay, flourish beyond our finances. What does this mean? I think before I get into this idea of flourishing beyond our finances, I need to explain how I got to this place where I was interested in flourishing beyond our finances. I've talked about this before in the podcast, but as far as I can remember, I was led to believe, this was a story that I told myself, but I was led to believe that money was the source of all happiness. As a kid, I started telling myself often that I was shy. 
I felt shy in social situations. I felt awkward when I was trying to talk to people who I perceived or told myself a story about them as having more information or having more whatever, fill in the blanks, but more than me. As a result, it silenced me. It made me feel powerless and it really made me feel like my voice didn't matter. These were just stories that I was telling myself, but as a shy kid and anyone who's felt shy or had tendencies of feeling shy, you understand what I'm saying. And it was interesting as I started watching more and more hockey as a Canadian, this is what we do. We watch a lot of hockey. I started seeing these hockey players seem so happy after the game when they had an interview And then I started becoming aware of how much money they make playing hockey. And then I started seeing how they live their lives. And there were some television shows that showed hockey players and their houses and their rinks in their backyard. And my mind, at this point, I was still young. So my immature mind started piecing together and telling myself another story. The story was, is that maybe if I had more money, and again, at this time I was young, wasn't making money, but this is a story I was telling myself, if I had more money, I'd become more powerful or my voice would matter or people would see me. I can still vividly recall the first time I ever made money and I still feel like I could feel the dopamine rush that I received as a seven-year-old when I made $75 selling paint at rocks at a family reunion. It was amazing. I remember feeling, wow, I can make money. Now, I have to say, one lesson outside of the fact that making money actually makes you feel good, the other lesson I have is if you want a successful business, you either need two things that are critically important. Number one is something that I did not have, is an amazing product that people want. And number two is that if you have a subpar product that nobody wants, to have a really loving grandfather who's going to buy all $75 worth of painted rocks. But I remember feeling excited and powerful and eventually buying into the idea that money equals happiness, even though I had no idea what to do with it. As a seven-year-old, what do I do with this money? I remember putting my wallet and just feeling ecstatic. And the excitement I felt around money as a kid drove me to take business school. And so began my pursuit of money. And it was during university that my wife and I had this crazy idea to quit, well, I guess postpone school to travel around the world for an entire year. And we set off to Vietnam with a one-way ticket and had no real plans. And together, we spent less than the price of a used compact car to travel around the world. It was amazing. It's one of the most amazing experiences of my life. And my money equals happiness script, it got turned on its head. I felt a new reason to have money. I had a new relationship with money. And I was inspired to come back, to change my actions and change how I thought about money. And then, just like every good New Year's resolution, a couple months later, everything fell apart and I went back to my old patterns. We returned home. I started again obsessing about money and I started reading books after books on personal finance on how to make money. And then I even took a career in financial services and I became a financial planner. While there's nothing really inherently wrong with what I'm saying, I do distinctly remember waking up one day and realize that six years of my life flew by. Six years had flashed faster than I could have ever imagined. And my obsession for money was overtaken by the busyness of life. Yet I was about to be a father and I wanted things to slow down. 
And while the memory of that trip and what it taught me about myself and money was still burning inside of me, the busyness of my life had snuffed out that fire. I felt stressed as I was doing so many things on other people's time. I was living to work instead of working to live. Despite all this wonderful personal finance information I was consuming, I had fallen into the rat race trap. I felt frustrated and stuck, and I realized it was time to dive deeper into my relationship with money to find out really what I wanted out of my money and my life. And it took me some time. And after taking the time to explore things like how money actually made me feel, what emotions it evoked, what I learned from my parents around money, the role money played in my house as a child, what my relationship with money was, and how I used money, I was discovering and recognizing my money story. And thanks to a lot of work from Dr. Brad Klontz, who has wonderful tools to help us facilitate this, I was starting to bring this unconscious belief I had around money to my conscious awareness. And it was amazing as I was starting to understand my money story. And after some deep introspection, I took the time to bring light towards my unconscious money beliefs and started to uncover my true values. And I really feel like understanding those true core values was fundamental in my money story. I realized that how I was spending my time and money wasn't necessarily in line with the things that were most important to me. And the last thing I needed was more financial information. I was discovering the traditional approach to personal finances where you focus on the external aspects like interest rate returns, portfolio construction. It wasn't enough for me. Not that there's anything bad with it. It just wasn't what I was looking for. My soul was seeking for more than just how to save and invest. I realized that I was giving too much power to money. And it made sense why I was doing that after this deep introspective thinking. And as I mentioned earlier, as a shy kid, money to me meant power. It meant my voice mattered. But I was giving too much power to that money. I was giving away too much of my power to money. And money really was a symbol of security for me. That money was a source of control. And above all, I realized these were just stories I was telling myself. And these stories were actually holding me back from finding my inner peace and my money story. Or as this next journey on the podcast is looking at, is how we can flourish beyond our finances. Now, as you've seen on the podcast, I deeply believe the key to having a healthy relationship with money is rooted in our own psychology. The field of financial psychology is incredibly interesting to me and impactful. And thanks to forerunners like Dr. Brad Klontz, Rick Kaler, we have amazing resources, research, and information that we have at our disposal. Because when we identify our money stories and our money beliefs that unconsciously impact how we think, feel, and act towards money, we can start to gain control over our money relationship. And it's because when we understand those money relationships and what's important, our entire money framework changes in a healthy manner where we can set ourselves up to flourish beyond our finances. The field of financial psychology has been very impactful for me. And financial psychology is where we integrate psychology into the world of personal finances. And as I mentioned, Dr. Brad Klontz and Dr. Ted Klontz were fundamental in creating this field. As this field helps us understand our past, understand our emotions and our feelings and helps us make sense of them. And they really help us go from 
the term that people use is from a deficit. So that's when maybe we have some maladaptive thoughts or things that we want to improve. And it helps us bring them to a functional neutral state, which is critically important when we're navigating our money stories and our relationships with money. If we don't understand the past, if we don't build that strong foundation, it's hard to create a flourishing relationship with money. Whereas the study of psychology and financial psychology brings us from this idea of deficit to neutral functioning, whereas positive psychology now takes us from this functioning neutral level and pushing us or facilitating us to go to a flourishing state. And there is large amounts of scientific research that support this claim that positive psychology can put us on a path to live the good life or experience more moments of well-being and to flourish beyond our finances. One of the most prominent researchers in positive psychology was Ed Diener. And when he looked at studying happiness and well-being with money, a lot of his research focused on levels of income, subjective well-being, and well-being as a whole. And one of his papers really supported this feeling that I was feeling in terms of my obsession over money and happiness wasn't creating the results I wanted when I focused on money in and itself. Diener suggested that desiring large amounts of money is likely to hinder our chances for levels of subjective well-being. And this was a fact that was completely at odds with my core beliefs and in conversations I've had with other people, a lot of other people's core beliefs, as we're almost bred to believe that more money will make us happy. And it's not to say that money doesn't create happiness because Diener's and a lot of other research has shown that money can in fact provide happiness. And especially when we look at the basic needs for human functioning, such as shelter, food, security, money has a huge correlation between happiness levels when we are buying those basic psychological needs that are necessary to functioning. Diener's research also showed that higher incomes allow nations and communities to have a higher level of health and well-being because it affords them access to more levels of health, social programs, and so forth, things that are attributed to our basic well-being needs. And this can't be ignored. We can't say that money doesn't buy happiness because the research is true. We know it can buy it up to a certain point. And his research, amongst many others, show there is a cap to this happiness. The cap is once we go beyond these basic needs. And when we get to the point where the acquisition of wealth goes beyond our basic needs and out of alignment and not congruent with our core values, the acquisition of this wealth can actually be counterproductive to happiness. Earning more income comes with the cost of spending more time at work and less time on social activities and social relationships, both of which social relationships and social activities are high indications of high levels of subjective well-being. So it's important to know that yes, money can and does buy happiness when we use it to buy our basic psychological needs and the basic needs of functioning as a human. But when we get to a certain cap or a certain level, there seems to be this disconnect between increased levels of happiness because we now start placing a greater emphasis on the wealth in itself versus the things that actually make us happy. 
Something else that Diener talks a lot about, and same with other researchers around money and happiness, is the hedonic treadmill. We've all heard about the hedonic treadmill or hedonic adaptation, probably in some form or another, but the hedonic treadmill is an adaptation from the hedonic adaptation concept where humans adapt very well to our external environments. And I'm glad they did because this was critical for our human ancestors when they survived grueling external conditions. They had to adapt in order to survive. And this is hardwired into us. And as humans, we still do this all the time, this idea of hedonic adaptation where we adopt to our external environments. Research has shown that our external environments can impact us to some degree, but usually after around three months, we go back down to our base set point. And that's the idea of hedonic adaptation. The research around hedonic treadmill borrows this idea that we adapt to external things that we purchase with our money or when we increase our salary, we eventually adapt to it and go back to our pre-existing happiness set point. But there is a period of time where there's more dopamine, we're excited and we feel like we are happier as a whole. But what happens over time, and I can attest for this and I'm sure everyone knows what I'm talking about. For example, I remember always wanting an air hockey table as a kid. I felt like it would make everything better. You couldn't play hockey all year round in Canada because we had summer and it's really hard to make ice outside when we have warm summer days. So the answer was an air hockey table. Well, I remember probably about four or five months after we got the air hockey table, it really didn't increase the levels of happiness in my life at that point. It did operate as a wonderful clothes hanger though. The point is, We all have an experience, I believe, that we thought something was going to make things in our lives better. And when we purchased it, our bodies adapted to it, our minds adapted to it. And we call that the hedonic treadmill. So why am I talking about this hedonic treadmill and hedonic adaptation when I'm really supposed to be talking about flourishing beyond our finances? It's because I wanted to set forth while I studied positive psychology Is it possible to use the concepts, the interventions, exercises, and questionnaires designed from very intelligent researchers, is it possible to still flourish beyond our finances when we have a lot of hardwired tendencies to help us adapt to our external environments? Is it possible to increase our levels of well-being by focusing on different things other than money in and itself? And I wanted to use and test these scientifically proven questionnaires, interventions, and exercises to see if I can flourish beyond my finances. The two interventions I want to talk about today are, number one, the best possible self intervention, and number two, the three good things intervention. I selected these ones for today's podcast because one of them really has research-based evidence that shows it has lasting impacts from anywhere from three to six months. And that's the three good things intervention. And I thought it was important to select an intervention that has some lasting impacts. But something important to know is that when we're doing these interventions, it's important to know that it's not all about doing something that's going to change your entire paradigm of thinking in one setting. That's really difficult to do. Instead, these interventions, I felt, and the research shows that they do a wonderful job 
momentarily giving us experiences of mild positive emotions every day. And those mild momentarily positive emotions help us to broaden and build our positive emotion bank account, so to speak, that help facilitate growth and doing this idea of flourishing. Barbara Fredrickson is a prolific researcher in the field of positive psychology, and she came up with this term or this method called broaden and build. Whereas you do these interventions to experience mild positive emotions. And by experiencing positive emotions, they broaden your perspective of positive emotions. And as such, it builds your positive emotion bank account, like I said earlier, which allows us to navigate and embrace and become more resilient when the inevitable negative or hard times of life come. So I really like this idea of broaden and build. And when I was looking at these interventions, I thought this is such a good idea because when we look at our money journeys, we know that unexpected things come up. We don't get the promotion or we have a big expense or the stock market doesn't do what we want it to do. And if we have this positive, so to speak, a bank account of positive emotions, it can help us lessen the blow or lessen the impact of the negative times and experiences life that are bound to come. So I thought it was really interesting how these interventions help us broaden and build our positive emotion bank account. And we can just see how beneficial having these positive emotions would serve our financial journey when the negative times and the negative experiences do come. Now, before we go into the actual interventions themselves, I want to go back to this idea that I keep talking about of flourishing beyond our finances and really touch on the word flourishing. So one of the most prolific influences on positive psychology is Dr. Martin Seligman. Dr. Martin Seligman is an accomplished American psychologist best known as the founder of modern positive psychology. He was once the president of the American Psychological Association, during which he heavily promoted the emerging scientific field of positive psychology. He now serves as the director for University of Pennsylvania Master of Applied Positive Psychology program. As an author of over 30 books, he wrote this one that I'm going to talk about now called Flourish. And this book is quite dense with academic research, but it's really approachable and really readable. Dr. Seligman really focuses on this idea of flourish. And to him, to flourish is to find fulfillment in our lives, accomplishing meaning and worthwhile tasks, and connecting with others at deeper levels, in essence, living the good life. One other point I want to touch on is that in his book, Seligman seeks to dispel the notion that happiness is equivalent to positive psychology. And we've all seen, well, maybe we all haven't, but often we see people portray positive psychology with this yellow happy face. Naturally, we just equate positive psychology to happiness. I know I did that as well. And I had this bias towards positive psychology, thinking it was all about thinking to be happy and you will be happy. If you think you're going to be happy, you will be happy. And it really turned me off to some degree of positive psychology until I actually started reading about positive psychology. And back to Seligman's idea of happiness is not equivalent to positive psychology. He claims this is due to the inherent limitations of an emotion like happiness, which fluctuates daily, hourly, and normally 
function in humans. Instead, he articulates that we should be striving for well-being and a state of flourishing in order to find lasting contentment. And really, that spoke to me. A few weeks ago, I had Brian Portnoy on the podcast who talked about funded contentment. And that spoke to me as well because I really feel this whole pursuit of money has distracted us from aspiring to achieve states of well-being and flourishing. And that's what this podcast is about today is how I've been learning techniques through positive psychology that may help us move towards finding that lasting contentment. And before we get into those interventions, which I promise we will, I think it's also important to talk about how the field of positive psychology defines well-being. And generally speaking, there's two distinct or two general thoughts of what allows people to experience happiness and well-being. The first is called subjective well-being, and that evaluates a person's satisfaction with their life and experience of positive emotions and negative emotions. So that's really a self-evaluation how you're feeling right now. The other side or the other perspective is called eudynamic approach, which focuses on the meaning and self-realization and defines well-being in terms of the degree to which a person is fully functioning. So one is more an evaluation on how your experience meaning and fulfillment in life. That's the eudynamic or also known as psychological well-being. And the other one is subjective well-being. And that's how am I evaluating the current situation? Am I enjoying my current situations or experiences in life? And researchers have shown that optimal function levels of well-being is when you have a little bit of both. You have that subjective well-being where you're experiencing hedonic pleasures in the moment, but you're not just always living for the now and the current experience where you can also focus on meaning and self-realization and evaluate if you're doing things that are congruent with your life's aspirations and do you have meaning and purpose in your life. So as I engaged with the first intervention, which I think everyone should give a try, it's called the best possible self intervention. I did this as a means to reflect on my values and to see if how I'm living now are congruent with my values. And it's interesting how the research has shown when people participate in the best possible self-intervention, they really bring an awareness and develop a clarity to one's goals beyond the money in and itself. And this intervention has shown that it helps people reorganize their priorities and helps them to bring awareness to the values, their core values that they actually have in their life. And before this intervention, I I felt like I had an idea of my core values, which I did, but this intervention really helped me bring more light towards my core values and really allowed me to see past my current self and realize that some of the things I'm doing right now don't align with my core values. And now it's up to me if I want to make those changes or not. Furthermore, what this intervention helps us do is it really helps us identify our authentic values because the external pressures of I should do this or maybe I should do it this way are removed in this intervention because it's just you and a piece of paper. And the research shows that it really allows for authentic values to come out. It allows for an authentic awareness of oneself behaving from our core values. And I thought this was really insightful. Now, on the opposite side, I wondered, by doing this intervention, 
could it actually create distress in myself? And what I mean by that is in the process of thinking about my best possible self from a financial lens, from my financial journey, I see a massive gap from where I was today to where my best possible self was. And would that actually just create more stress? Fortunately, as I participated in this intervention, I did come with an open mind and it didn't create that stress or that added layer of, oh my gosh, I'm nowhere near where I want my best possible self. It actually did the opposite. It confirmed that I was doing things that aligned with my values, but also gave me clarity. And I really enjoyed that clarity. I felt that I was able to become very objective in this experience by zooming out and just looking at the piece of paper as I drew down what my best possible self would look like. So how do you do this intervention? Well, what the research has shown is... The first thing you do is you're supposed to think about high-level life goals, which in some cases allow people to find new goals and sources of motivation they had not previously thought about. And then for four days, you're instructed to write about your best possible self. Some add adaptations or even draw pictures, which I did, which I felt were very, very valuable. But it's to, for four days, think about your high-level life goals and write about them for four days. And I do encourage you to draw pictures as well. And you might think, oh, I'm not going to draw a picture. That's kind of quirky, but really pictures do help. And so the research has shown that writing about life goals was associated with small increases in subjective well-being over three weeks, which is really neat. Over three weeks, you can have a boost in your subjective well-being. The results demonstrated that writing about life has physical benefits and psychological benefits. So what that means is the research showed that not only does it help our minds on the psychological side, but it also helps on our physical benefits. People felt more energy, which allowed them to exercise or be present with their family more. And you might be thinking, three weeks, that's not much. But again, the goal is not to have a earth-shattering, paradigm-changing intervention all at once. The goal is to help us momentarily experience positive emotions. So again, we go to Fredrickson's research, we broaden and build our emotional bank. And it was also interesting to see in the research just how powerful visualization is for individuals who imagine themselves accomplishing tasks or goals or things compared to people who don't. I've always heard the benefits of visualization, but in the research, it was really, really shocking to see the dramatic impact visualization actually has on people who visualize themselves in the future. And I really speak for myself. I almost felt the emotions that my future self was experiencing when I took the opportunity to visualize. And since this whole idea is flourishing beyond our finances, I decided to adapt the study slightly different and spent the four days visualizing myself and imagining a life where money wasn't my primary motive for decision-making. And that's something that has always been in my mind is I make decisions based on a financial consequence or benefit. And I want to remove that. And I was hopeful that I would focus more on my values and not my money. And it was interesting how this shift did happen. But also I realized that it's really, at least based on my experience, not actually possible to totally remove them because money is so ingrained in our lives. But what was the shift for me was to get that real good clarity on what my values were. 
Another experience I had during this intervention was realizing how much judgment and external pressures were removed when I participated in this four days of writing. I didn't feel pressures to envision or write down or visualize my best possible self from external pressures. Instead, it was really internally driven, which really felt good as I was able to remove these judgments that are usually there. And I decided to do this exercise in the morning. And just as Fredrickson had said about her broad and build model, I felt these positive emotions as I was doing this exercise every morning. It was great. I would finish this little five to eight minute exercise and I would go into my day with a lot of positive effect or feeling positive. And it was so interesting that my days holistically on the days I engaged in this exercise were better. And sure, I'm biased saying this in hindsight in the fact that I probably was looking for my days to get better, but maybe that's the point. I'm not sure, but maybe it was. And throughout those days, there were negative things that happened, but it just felt like I had this positive momentum that allowed me to embrace them and deal with them and become more resilient. And something that's important that is throughout all the research in positive psychology is that it's not avoiding negative emotions. That's actually quite damaging. There's a saying that goes, what gets suppressed gets expressed. Rather, it's focusing on positive emotions so that when we experience the negative emotions, which we do, we can absorb them, become more resilient. So as I reflected on my experience with the best possible intervention, it was clear when I'm authentic with myself and I reflect on my core values and higher life goals, I do experience moments of high subjective well-being. It just felt good. And although my life still had difficulties or negative emotions during these times, I felt high levels of pleasant emotions and low levels of negative emotion while I participated with these interventions and even beyond. And I decided to couple the best possible self-intervention with my second one that I chose, the three good things intervention as a means to enhance the best possible self. So what I mean by that is the best possible self was visualizing and imagining myself at an optimal functioning and flourishing level with a healthy relationship with money. Whereas the three good things intervention was to focus on our strengths and to build components that allow us to cope and become more resilient to build that positive emotional bank account. And I use the three good things intervention as a way, like I said, to enhance the best possible self. And while the three good things intervention seems straightforward and simple, it really resonated with me because it provided me with the opportunity to write and reflect. Something that I've been enjoying lately is this idea to reflect. And that goes back to that eudynamic well-being, is when we can reflect and evaluate our life and the meaning it provides, we get to have a different perspective, one that we're not used to. And for me, writing and reflecting wasn't something that I normally practiced. So the structure of the three good things intervention actually has a few different components that have been designed to help facilitate increased moments of happiness for the participants. The first element is to simply write down three good things that happened to you. In my case, I focused on my money story and my financial life. And the second element requires the participants to become more active in those items they wrote down from step one and to ask ourselves questions about our day and why things went well. 
So the first step is to write down three things that went well. And the second part is to activate and become active and ask ourselves why those things went well. The third element activates our attention as participants think about good experiences and focus on them. So the attention that we place on those things that went well allow us to focus and put our attention on them, which then goes into the fourth element of this intervention, which allows participants to shift our feelings to positive emotions while they think about the three good things. So what we mean by that is you might be having a stressful day or there might be some negative emotions that you're feeling going into this intervention, but by writing down three good things that have happened, focusing on them, then brings our attention over to them, which then creates positive emotions. And the fifth and final element is the desired outcome we are seeking for is experiencing those positive emotions. So it's interesting how this intervention was really designed to facilitate an authentic experience of positive emotions. And it was really interesting to see that the research showed that there's scientific evidence for lasting impacts where this three good interventions demonstrated that participants were happier and less depressed than they had been at baseline and they stayed that way happier and less depressed for at least three to six months on follow-ups within their surveys. Now, it's important to note that People who had the best results also had high adherence in continuing with the exercises. And it's those individuals that reported the highest levels of happiness. So that just means they followed through with the exercise and continued doing it. This exercise is intended to do for a one-week period. And that's intentional because if you continue doing it over and over, we go back to that idea of adaptation and we adapt to it and it's not as new and fresh. It doesn't have the same impact. Further research has shown if you want to continue doing it, pick one day a week to practice your three good things. As I talk about this, I can remember what I was experiencing during this exercise and I know during the last few days of the three good things, my original week because I did continue, I was experiencing some stressful situations in my life and I found myself focusing on negative thoughts and negative effects and the consequences that these stressful situations can have. And it was so interesting how when I engaged with the three good things interventions, these negative emotions seemed to dissipate or were actually replaced with positive emotions, which then gave me some clarity to think clear and think about how to solve the problem. I was amazed by my positive emotions and their ability to propagate further positive effects or positive feelings. And really, as I'm reflecting here, I was not simply just engaging in positive thinking in terms of there's a word out there called positive toxicity, which is where we just think, oh, I'm happy, I'm happy, I'm happy, even though you might not be happy. And that's really damaging. And I know that I wasn't doing that because I could feel the difference. It was engaging in positive effects in my life allowed me to become more emotionally resilient to handle the negative situations that I've been having. So regarding lasting impacts, it's too soon for me to give an actual opinion here, but I do know that I feel and felt the positive impacts of these exercises as it really helped me to focus on the important things, the important beliefs and the values that I identified in my best possible self. 
I'm going to continue to evaluate this and continue to re-engage with my best possible self because I really did feel like it helped me become more clear on what I wanted out of my financial life and my money story. And so I'm going to talk about one more positive psychology tool that I think is really, really important. It's developed by Dr. Martin Seligman, and it's called his PERMA model. And I talked about this on a podcast with Dr. Sarah Abesto. And the PERMA model, it's a way that we can evaluate our own well-being. As Seligman has created five measurable elements that make up well-being. And those five elements are held within the acronym of PERMA. So PERMA is spelled P-E-R-M-A, and it stands for P for positive emotion, E for engagement, R for relationship, M for meaning, and A for accomplishment. I find that the five key measurable areas or elements of PERMA allow people like myself to focus our attention on practical elements or key areas in our life that have been proven scientifically to help increase our levels of well-being. Research has shown the PERMA model is really effective to help people who might not know what creates a happy or good life for them, and they might not know where to start. And the PERMA model really provides you with an evaluation of your life in one of those five key areas, which again are positive emotion, engagement, relationships, meaning, and accomplishment. And it provides you with insight on one area that might need more attention, or perhaps two, three areas. But what I really like is it provides you with that insight after you do the assessment on which areas perhaps you could use a little more attention and which areas you're doing well in. And why I feel like positive psychology can really help us in our money stories after going back to our first conversation, after we identify our money scripts and the past behaviors, thoughts, beliefs we have around money, once we identify that and become in our neutral functioning position, positive psychology really, really aims at optimal human functioning. That's what positive psychology is. It's a scientific study of optimal human functioning. And if that's the goal of well-being, I feel like it's so important that we integrate these interventions with our money lives since money influences so much of our lives and we spend so much of our lives chasing, working, and developing ways to make more money. And PERMA is a great model that allows us to integrate well-being into our daily lives. Whenever we look at scientific models, it's important we look at their effectiveness. And well-being models are consistently being studied for their effectiveness. Regarding PERMA, there have been suggestions that there's a lack of theoretical and rationale about why the five facets were chosen. So positive emotion, engagement, relationships, meaning, and accomplishment. And while it's important to review the critics and counter arguments, PERMA model has been tested and has been used. And its founder, Dr. Martin Seligman, says it's at the very least a really good start to figuring out this wonderfully complex world of well-being. And I believe that's true. And from a personal perspective, I really felt, like I said earlier, it gave me a good understanding on what key areas, based on his research, help us increase our levels of well-being. And in my quest to flourish beyond our finances, I really felt it helped a lot. Because if you look at the PERMA model, P 
stands for positive emotion. So it gets you to question how much, if any, are you experiencing positive emotions in your life? How can you incorporate more experiences that are going to build those positive emotions? And E is for engagement. How much engagement do you have in your life? Are you engaging in activities that provide you with positive emotions? Are you engaging in activities that provide you negative emotions? And so are you engaging too much in those activities? And R for relationships. Do you have positive relationships? Do you have meaningful relationships in your life? And the M for meaning is do you have meaning in the work, meaning in your family life, meaning in what you do? And the last one is do you have a feeling of a sense of accomplishment? So it's really interesting that this theory can help broaden our viewpoints that if my goal is to flourish beyond my finances, that perhaps the end goal should not just be save $2 million or a million dollars or $500,000 or $100,000 or $50,000. It's really questioning ourselves, why? Why are we saving that money? And again, there's a certain level of money that we need for basic needs. But once we get above that cap, it's really questioning, why am I doing that? If you're interested in the PERMA model, I'll put a link in the show notes to Dr. Seligman's website, Authentic Happiness, where there's a free questionnaire that you can do to help you evaluate yourself on the PERMA model. I really highly suggest it because I find it provides that objective view on all areas of your life that build well-being. Because too often when we look at the, the money side of life, we're just focused on that number. And it's okay to focus on that number. But what the research has shown is that if our end goal, if our goal is solely a number, once we get to that number, then what? Because life is about the journey and aspiring to get that number and achieving it can actually be quite disheartening because then that sense of a meaning is gone. Sure, we have accomplishment, but we just risk having not so much meaning at that point in time. And a lot of the work in positive psychology is really becoming clear on your values and the meaning you have in your day-to-day activities so you can experience those positive emotions. As I dive into the study of positive psychology and integrating our money stories, personal finance, it's my goal or my aim to critically evaluate if it's possible to engage with the study of positive psychology and the interventions and questionnaires to allow us to flourish beyond our finances. So far, I think it certainly has the ability and wonderful tools to allow us to flourish beyond our finances. The interventions I talked about today really allowed me to get clarity on my authentic core values. It allowed me to engage in reflective writing and allowed me to become more objective when I'm looking at my money story. And while I can't say with sheer confidence that I've flourished beyond my finances, because I think that's an aspirational goal, one where we are always striving and never arriving, I can confidently say that my perspective on what's essential in my life, in my money story, and what's worth pursuing or not has changed thanks to these interventions in the study of positive psychology. As I often lived with the story or narrative that I needed money to make me happy, After a relatively short period of time being exposed to positive psychology, my mentality is shifting a lot and my money story is again evolving. Thank you for tuning in this week. I hope you enjoyed this solo conversation as I did 
enjoy going through the research and sharing some of the stuff that I've been reading over the past number of years. Next week, we're back to the interviews as we have a fantastic guest, Lauren Williams, who's a four-time Olympian, three-time Olympic medalist, the first American to win a medal in both the Summer and Winter Games, who is now turned into a financial planner, speaker, and author. She is coming to share her insight, her story. Tune in next week. And until then, have a great week.